Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, stories, and shenanigans that make Cincinnati Museum Center what it is. I'm Cody Hefner, and I'm joined today by our George Rivashel Curator of Archaeology, Bob Genheimer himself. Welcome, Bob. <laughs> Thanks, Cody. I'm glad to be here. Did you not like the introduction? I do. It was, it was I very do like official, it. right? Yes. Yes. Talk to us about your title. You are Curator of Archaeology, which we'll get into, but... Who is George Rivashel? Uh, George Rivashel, let's just make it simple. He invented Benadryl. Okay. Uh, he was a medic in World War II, and when he came back, uh, he was in you know, UC on faculty UC med school. Him and somebody else uh, invented this antihistamine that was much more powerful than anyone had ever seen before. And he asked his partner, he interested, his partner says no, and I think I understand he may have asked the university, and they may have said no. So he went on with this patent and, and wound up at Park Davis in Detroit. So he held the patent on Benadryl for a long time, and he was interested in all sorts of stuff. So when I first met him, he starts sending me clippings. You know, today everybody sends you an email or a text. This is yeah. old school. He would now see, if someone sends you clippings, you you call the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like a, a murder note or something. But uh, he, he would he would clip stuff out of magazines. He he subscribed to every magazine in the world, all the science stuff, all the archaeology stuff. He would cut them out. He'd put a little note on it. Here, Bob, what do you think of this? And then he would put them in an envelope and send them to me. And I thought I was special. And when he died, and I went to his wake, I think it was at the Queen City Club. Everybody got up and spoke about they were receiving clippings, too. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I felt small, like everybody was getting my clippings. But uh, he was he was a great guy, and I talked to him. I spent an afternoon talking to him about our collections and our archaeology. He was fascinated, and he endowed the curator of archaeology position here at the Museum Center. And how long have you been curator of archaeology here? Uh, since 2003. But that's not when you started with your organization. No. No, I started in 1990, uh, the year that the museum opened up at Union Terminal. So the Cincinnati Historical Society and the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History had separate buildings over in Even Park, and they moved over to Cincinnati Union Terminal, and that's the year I started. Most people cut a ribbon, but Cincinnati Museum Center presented a Bob Genheimer yes. for the opening of the building. That's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just telling you this. There's a Cincinnati Bell telephone book for 1990. Go find one. You can probably look it up online. It has a picture of us all standing out in front of the terminal around the fountain. Uh, it's at a long distance. It's hard to tell who is who. But that was the cover of the phone book because that was such a big event in 1990, yeah. reusing this building, which had always been a Cincinnati landmark. And now we kind of take it for granted that the museum center is here. It's always been here. It's always going to be here. And we've had moments in recent memory where that's not always been a given but in 1990, it was a big deal. I mean, that was a landmark occasion for the year. It was. All sorts of people were there, politicians, everything. They had worked for years to save that building. They had tried once before with the shopping center and so forth. Didn't quite make it. But this looked like it was finally going to work. And as we all know, uh, you know, switched to present time, it's worked really well. Scott Gamfer, who used to work in our, our history libraries and archives, was always fantastic. And I would always... T. Scott up. Hey, Scott, we have this uh, We have this interview. Then we're talking about this figure, this moment in history. And he'd say, I'm not a historian. And then he would rattle off all these anecdotes. And I'm like, that's what people want. But 
as we were going through the restoration of the building, we're talking about an anniversary of the building, they'd say, when was the heyday of this building? Was it during World War II? And Scott would say, it's right now. Never in this building's history has it been used as consistently, as thoroughly, uh, and been so enjoyed by so many and so pivotal to so many as it is right now. Yeah. Which is, it's a 90-year-old building. And to think that we are living in its heyday. I don't even call it a building. That's just like too pedestrian. This this is a fabulous piece of architecture. It is fabulous. You know, um, and as I've told you before, I have a history of this building long before I ever worked for the Museum Center. Yeah, tell us about it. Uh, well, I'll tell you one story. We um, It wasn't the first time I was here, but in high school, I was in a high school band. And, what instrument? Uh, I played the clarinet, if you must know. Haven't played it since. No? you Really? Yeah. I was going to say, the Geyer Collections Center is just brimming with musical talent. Yes, it is. Well, I don't... But not it, from your your quarter, apparently. No, no. no. <laughs> I want it to be Benny Goodman, but for those of you out there, look up Benny Goodman. You'll find out who he is. This is where we pause so I can Google Benny Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway, I came down here. It was a rainy day. We were supposed to be doing band practice, marching formation, and we couldn't do it outside. It was really raining. So somebody said, well, you can go down to Union Terminal in the concourse because we could just go right in. And we did that. And have you, have you been in the concourse, Cody, when it was open? No. Before, oh, my God. Was it fabulous? It was destroyed in, in the 70s. I, this was before that. Yes. No, I was not. I was in high school, remember? I was a twinkle in my dad's eye oh, in the okay. 70s. No, we went down here. It was probably near the end, but... They had all these murals up there and the map. You've seen the photos, the map of the U.S. on the end with the clock. and The 14 murals, the map at the end. Yeah. And there were, I think there were 16 train lines. So essentially 16 terminals down yeah. this concourse. So if you're, if you're visiting today, the building essentially stops at the Omnimax Theater. But it extended well beyond that until 1974. So up until that point, the concourse was much, much longer. Yes. Than we than we know now, and that's where you were playing. Yeah, and uh, if you were there in the day, it was like a portal into another universe. You'd be sitting in that huge rotunda, very light and airy, and then there was this long corridor with these beautiful murals. And the light at the end of that corridor was that the large mural with the map of the U.S. It was amazing. It didn't matter whether the the openings for the terminals, people going on the trains, were not being used. It was amazing to see, and I remember that. I was in awe with it when I was there in that high school band. Uh, so we practiced. And were, now, I will tell you, the sound was awful. We were playing our instruments. As <laughs> right. you know, many places inside her bound, the sound just reverberates off the walls. It wasn't designed for that. Uh, but we remember we practiced in here. But as I told you, that was not my first encounter. What was your first? Okay, uh, so you were you born and raised in Cincinnati? Yes. Okay. Uh, I lived, grew up in Clifton. Okay. So we used to walk to the Reds games at Crosley Field, which are, you know, just a block and a half away from the terminal. So when I was five or six years old, came down here with my father and my brother. My brother's a couple years older than me. I don't remember why we were here, but my father actually worked for the B&O Railroad. Okay. And when I got my birth certificate to get my first passport, it surprised me. It said father's place of employment since that Union Terminal. It was like... Well, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. It's still hanging in the same tree. Yeah. I mean, I'm still right there. That's incredible. I know. So we were down here. I don't remember what we were doing, but what I do remember, and this is still a vivid memory of me today, is all of a sudden I had to pee. <laughs> and I told my father, and he took me over to one of the, they had these uh, restrooms there. 
and walked in and he put me in front of this urinal and I know this is probably apocryphal but it looked like it went from floor to ceiling and it was like Italian marble or something and I looked at it and I thought I can't go in this there's no way I can pee into this they don't build urinals like I they know. used to and my dad was not happy <laughs> He was really mad at me. I don't remember anything other than that. But I remember I could, it was like a sacrilege to go into this large um, marble urinal. Uh, so I was intimidated by the building at that point. And when you think about it, today I'm in awe of the building. I was intimidated then. They're kind of the same thing. You haven't peed here since. I haven't. I go back to Geyer. <laughs> I defy someone to have a better first experience at Union Terminal, a better story than you do. Let's let's spin forward. Um, we'll get to more urinal stories later, but let's spin forward. Curator of archaeology, what does that mean? What what do you do here? Uh, I do all sorts of things as a curator of archaeology. So um, technically, I'm in charge of all the volunteers, uh, the research that goes on, the lab and all that, although I have Tyler Swinney who does a lot of that stuff for me. But I sort of coordinate all that stuff. Uh, so I would do more dealing with the media, things like that, that involve archaeology. Also doing research. So as you know, we did uh, a field school locally for a dozen years, uh, not too long ago. So all those things. But research is essentially it. Some collections management. Uh, but we have enormous collections, and uh, I need someone to help me with that, and that's what Tyler does. Did you want to become an archaeologist because you were drawn to the research? What drew you to the field of archaeology? Like, w what got you here? Oh, that's a long story. This goes way back, even before my urinal story. We're going to go a little <laughs> further back than that. When I was a child, I grew up in Lower Clifton, so... Uh, if you know where Clemmer and Luna and Valley View, those streets are um, not too far from St. Monica's Parish up there. There was all these wooded areas. And when I was a kid, I, I liked going out in the woods and seeing stuff. And I was fascinated by old stuff. I would bring back old bottles. I'd be looking at old foundations and all that. My mother would throw them out. And I would bring more bottles back home. And what I was doing is I would look at these foundations and I would make up stories in my head. It was like I was the only one who can interpret these things, and it made me feel very special. I had no idea what archaeology was. I didn't even know what to call it, what I was doing. Right. But I knew I was excited about that. And, of course, in high school, you don't learn any of this stuff. When you go to college, you start, you know, they teach you how to think. So before I actually went to the University of Cincinnati, we grew up almost right next to the university. And that was our playground. You didn't even enroll. You just snuck no. In. I just, I just, they already knew who I was. So um, <laughs> and that, they still let you in. Yeah, that, that was our playground, and we would go into classrooms. There was a geology museum there. In fact, the the elephant, the old chief that we have, yeah. was in there. Uh, that was a great place to be. And I'm, I'm starting to think the other day, I probably was thrown off that camp, not thrown off, but I was escorted off that campus probably a dozen times before I actually matriculated as a student. Really? Yeah, because they, they knew who we were. They, they didn't call the police. They didn't call your parents. They just said, you know, it's time for you to leave, which we would. And then we'd come back because that was, that was a great playground, the university. Uh, so when I went there actually as a student, uh, my freshman year, I knew I was interested in the past, but I didn't know what to do about it. So I took intro to history courses, and I took intro to anthropology courses where archaeology is taught. See, I wanted to take an archaeology class in college, and I was like, there are no archaeology classes. 
in close enough in the then you had a physical book to to look at classes was anthropology and i kind of read it and i was like that sounds sort of similar yeah. so i took an anthropology class and the entire time i was like this isn't archaeology is it but it kind of is right well it's it's a subdiscipline of anthropology so anthropology is culture anthropology linguistics uh, some other things in it as well so it's, you it's, can specialize but archaeology in america most of the time falls under anthropology because uh, it's a study of man so that's where i got it. so i don't remember my intro to history courses and i'm not saying i'm not interested i am interested in history it just didn't excite me I do remember my intro to anthropology courses because they talked about archaeology, and it sort of a light went off in my head, and I said, "I know what I want to do now. I want to get my hands dirty. That's what I want to do." I'm thinking, I'm hearkening back to those days where I'm looking at foundations, collecting bottles, and all this. I can do this for a living. They're going to pay me to do this, and I thought that was fabulous, and I've never looked back. You essentially had a straight line path. A lot of people. Uh... I mean, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid. It's the first job I ever wanted to have as a kid when, when you're growing up. That's the first one I remember ever saying, this is what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an archaeologist. And, of, of course, I was born in 1984. So I was wanting to be an archaeologist before I knew that Indiana Jones was an archaeologist. And then I kind of learned that. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. But where I got into it, mummies were huge. Egypt yeah, was yeah. huge. And you, you go to book fairs and stuff. And it, it, there's just... You know, these golden sarcophagi on the cover of all these. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not an archaeologist, but I do have a question for you. How do you think I'd have done as an archaeologist? I think you'd have done okay. I think you're, uh, <laughs> you're curious. <laughs> you're curious. <laughs> you know, you're, you have to be a curious person. You have to uh, ask lots of questions. And I think you do that. I think that's one of the reasons you're doing these podcasts, because you know what questions to ask. I ask you a lot of questions, uh, professionally and just for yeah. out of personal curiosity. And you're very good at speaking about these things that can be very technical in a way that's interesting and relevant to people, in a way that they get it, uh, in a way that they want to listen to it. And a lot of times when you work in a more technical field, it's hard to break through that jargon because you feel like the jargon is so critical to the explanation of it. But you're very good at saying, all right, I'm going to explain this to you, but I need you to come along with me because if I lose you, then what's the point? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's more of a museum voice. I'm not an academician. Museum people are different. We like to tell stories. We want to excite the public. We're not going to spit out all this taxonomic terms to you and all this other stuff unless we have to. We're here to excite you and to educate you. Uh, so it's a different sort of thing. So if you saw me at a conference giving a paper, I may sound a lot different. But as a museum person, I want it's, – it's entertaining someone is what it's doing. Uh, people want to be entertained. They want to learn something. They want to be entertained. And that, you have to adjust that. But that, that comes from a lot of years of practice as well. Thinking about entertaining people and, and still telling the story, if, if people are entertained by the story, they're retaining it, they're listening to it, they're paying attention to it. When I was in, in college, I'd, I'd say this person's such a bad writer, I, I can't get through it. I, I don't understand what point they're trying to make because it's a slog to, to fall along, to pay attention. Right. But if someone could write well and they just wrapped you up in it, you're just, right. you get it, you, you understand. And one of the first exhibits that we did internally when I joined the marketing team was uh, the Privy exhibit, Medicine, Marvels, and Mayhem. 
Is that what it wow, was? Wow, you remember the yeah, name of that. It's pretty good, right? I don't think I remembered it. I learned what a privy was. Yeah. It's an old-timey toilet, yeah. kind of, right? How would you describe a privy? Well, it's the privy shaft that we're actually interested in. It's not the above-ground house where you do your business in, but the shaft down below where your business actually goes. And there are storehouses of knowledge. They're almost always undisturbed because they're so deep. They're stratified. Archaeologists love things that are stratified. That means that there's layers and layers and layers, and the lower layers are older than the upper levels. And in historical archaeology is what we're talking about. You can tie things to actually historic records like city directories and census lists. It's amazing to do. I wish we were able to do more of it. There's a couple stories that we do out of this. And one of them that I do is, and it was referenced in the exhibit you hit, it's called The Policeman in the Privy. Yes. Um, and I'm actually going to get giving two talks in April. Are you? Uh, one for the Cincinnati Women's Club and one for the Archaeological Research Institute in Lawrenceburg. On the policeman in the privy. Um, is, a, it, is this because the reputation of that story precedes uh, you? It's or, an inter- you? No, it's an interesting story because it melds history and archaeology data. So it's like a wedding between the two. But it also has all the stuff that's interesting, like uh, violence, mayhem, you know, family greed, all this sort of stuff that goes in to a story. Uh, and we use historical sources and the archaeological data to come up with this story. We don't know it 100%, but it's interesting enough to tell. I love telling this story. And it has it's punctuated by real objects. Yes. That stuff is there. Chekhov's gun was in a privy shaft. We have it. So what's the story of the policeman? I'll just do it briefly. But when we were digging in 1980, uh, this is in the Queensgate area downtown, so a couple of blocks from City Hall, we did a couple of privies side by side uh, behind this 1840 structure. And uh, this one, we were, uh, I'm trying to remember the depth, 10, 11 feet. We started hitting pieces of blue cloth and all this and then buttons and things like that. And so it turned out to be a Cincinnati policeman's uniform. The cloth had deteriorated almost to nothing, but all the hardware's there, all the buttons. They had the seal of the city of Cincinnati with Junk to Juven on it and uh, buckles, uh, all sorts of other accoutrements that with the uniform in the pocket was a rubber and uh, metal stamp that was corroded. And when we got into it, it had the officer's name really? on it. And his name was Charles Dustin. It said D-U-S-T-I-N on the stamp. If we didn't see that, we would have never known what this was. And back at the time when we did it, there was no internet. If you wanted to look all this stuff up, you would have to sit down and read newspapers from cover to cover in city directories. Uh, but later on, uh, when uh, the newspapers became indexed and on the internet, we were able to look this guy up. And let's just say he was trouble. He was trouble. He. Uh, what he, time period are we, are 18, we talking? Late 1890s into 1900, 1901, 1902. Okay. And it turns out, and this is the cool part of the story, he was not a Cincinnati policeman. He just had the uniform. He was a mercantile policeman. So what's the difference? Mercantile policemen guard property or they guard people. So he had his own little zone or his territory up in uh, North Avondale that he was working on. And he apparently had a temper and accused other people of horning in on his territories pulled a gun on one of them, and they had this fight on and off a streetcar. It's in the newspaper. You can read it. He shot this other policeman in the leg, but it just grazed him. He lost his powers as a policeman. Um, He lost his right to carry a firearm. This is back before they had sidearms. They could carry pocket guns. And uh, But 
a year and a half later, he's right back at it again with the nephew of the first guy, pulls a gun on him, uh, doesn't shoot him, but they have an arrest warrant out for him. Uh, the next day, they find him in plain clothes in a, in a set of stables in downtown Cincinnati. He pulls a gun on that arresting officer, doesn't get to shoot it. They arrest him, and he winds up in, um, in the workhouse, the Cincinnati workhouse. He had an insanity hearing where they said he was sane, but he was not well enough to be released to the public. And then four or five months later, he's moved to Longview State Hospital for the mentally insane where he spent the rest of his life. So when did the uniform and the gun end up in, was it, do you suspect it's that it's before he ended up at the stables in, in plain clothes that he yes. dumped it? We think he just walked into, I have this vision of him walking into the outhouse in the backyard, taking off his uniform, discarding it, and then walking naked back into the house. That's That's the image I have. He knew he was in trouble. They were going to come looking for him. And, uh, and I didn't tell you, inside the pocket of the uniform is a pearl-handled forty-one caliber Derringer. Still loaded. Really? Yes. And, and that survived? Yes. Th- th- through when you, yeah. when you found it? Yeah. It's, it's corroded a bit, but it's still there. It's still loaded. It's, it's what they call a poker gun. The barrel twists to the side. You can reload it. So it's meant for short quarters. You have one shot. The only way you're going to get a second shot is if you pull the barrel back, take out the cartridge, insert another cartridge, and close the barrel. That doesn't normally happen. So it was meant meant for one shot at close quarters. Um, so that was cool to see that. And we identified the gun. It's called a Southerner Derringer. Really? Uh, oddly enough, made in, in the north, not in the south. Uh, so we, can, we have pictures of what it would look like today. But it's just a great story using... The historic resources of newspapers, the archaeology, and showing what was happened. He was the son of a prominent Civil War veteran in Cincinnati and a big-time defense attorney. So there's that story that goes with it. So I just find it a fabulous story. And, and you have all these pieces to punctuate it. it yes. It's, it's completely different if all you have are a few buttons. But when you have the other pieces that start to tie it together, it sensationalizes it a little bit because it was a sensationalized story. Yeah. Like there are so many elements to it, but when you have that and you can show that to people, and I think that's the power of museums when you can show them something that relates to that year, regardless of when that is, it just helps bring that story to life or you feel like you're that much closer to it. Right. And all of this came from a privy chef because who's going to look in an outhouse hole. Who's, no one who's ever diving for that? It. That's why there, there's all sorts of aberrant behaviors that are documented in these privy shafts because no one's going to look and see what you did. It's the same way when you're driving off an interstate and you're going off an exit and it turns around where nobody can see it. That's where all the, all, all the garbage is thrown. Yeah. People do things in the privy shafts and no one's going to see. The one next door to it had uh, almost four dozen cats that had been tossed into it. Wow. That's how people apparently got rid of litters of kittens. As bad and horrific as that sounds, I gave this talk once at the public library downtown, and an old man walked up to me and said, did you find any cats and dogs in there? And I said, well, yeah, we did. He, That's the way we used to get rid of them. So, you know, you learn. They're, they're just wild. storehouses of, of history in there. And no pun intended, but history that's not been sanitized, right? Because if you have a diary yeah you think you're getting into some personal stuff but you still have the pretext that someone can read it and someone can see it but when you throw it 
Yeah. Essentially, in the toilet, you don't imagine that someone's diving for that and and, and going to find it. No. Hence why the officer threw the uniform and the gun in the privy shaft. Yeah. He figured no one's going to look for it, and they probably wouldn't. But they knew where he lived. You so, know, he you know, so they could have found him pretty relatively quickly. How do you even know where these privy shafts are? How do they get exposed? How do you how do you know where to look? In downtown urban areas, they're in the back of the lot. So if you look at uh, anything downtown, you take over the Rhine or any of those places, if you look, the houses face the front on the streets. But in the back where they come together on that block, that's called Privy Row. So there's usually a fence line between them. But the privies are placed as far away from the house as possible for good reason. Naturally. So that it, it, that works both ways. So all the privies are in, in a line right next to each other against the fence. So they dig shafts down there. And we actually figured out how they dug them, which is cool as well because... How do you dig something in, uh, like, sand and gravel, which is a lot of that stuff? The way they did it, they used these large barrels or hogsheads, and these things are, like, five foot, four and a half feet across. And they would put a hole in the bottom of them, and they would start digging through that hole and throwing the dirt out. And then these things would sink into the ground. When you reach the top of it, you just bolt another one on. So you're you're sort of, like, building a caisson yeah. as you go down, which protects you from collapse. And then they just, inside of that, they just wall up with limestone in a circle um, to the top. Sometimes they use brick as well, but it's dry laid, and that's what they use. And 10 to 12 feet deep. Oh, 20, 25, some of them 30 foot deep. Wow. In a, in a city that was known as Porkopolis and, and Forget It and stuff, you can imagine you need that extra depth, right? <laughs> that's, a lot of, that's a lot of pork in the diet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so they... You know, we, we could see how these things were put together. And some lots would have two and three and four privies through time. Now, technically, you had to clean them out. But again, who you... was going to check on whether you cleaned them out? Most people just dug another one. And even if they were abandoned, you were supposed to clean them out. And we found, we did some work at Finley Market, you know, where the parking lot is next to Finley Market. Yeah, We did urban archaeology in there. And what we found out is these things were completely empty, some of them, and they were supposed to fill them then so that uh, they were they were safe. They just put cedar planks across the top and poured concrete on it. <laughs> so when we went down there to open one up. We did it with a backhoe, and we had one person on each side, and this concrete thing split in the center, and it fell down 25 feet. We're oh standing there with our, our toes hanging over the opening of this privy shaft. So they got around the, the ordinance by simply making it look like they had filled it. And, you know, so they didn't have to go through all that trouble. So so you're telling me archaeology is as dangerous as Indiana Jones makes it look? Uh, we don't have the snakes or big rolling balls, but yes. How accurate is that from an archaeological perspective? Should people be taking Indiana Jones films uh, to heart for, from a perspective of what an archaeologist does not really i mean it, it's it's pretty much fakery and i've seen some articles and people say, could indiana jones really have gotten tenure the answer is probably no uh <laughs> that always threw me off as a kid when he was in the classroom because i was like you don't look cool like you're out like yeah. fighting nazis and stuff so when i did archaeology when i when i got to by the time indiana jones came out our my uh colleagues we looked at it as just sort of foolishness you know uh, nobody's going to ever think this is archaeology and all this. And we just thought, no, this is not. But the generation that came afterwards, and I've seen this on conferences, when they asked these people these questions, like more than half of them 
wanted to become an archaeologist, and they did because of Indiana Jones movies. So it had the effect, even though it's it's not real, it had the effect of increasing the number of archaeologists and making it look cool. Indiana Jones is the top gun of archaeology. Sure. Because Top Gun drove a ton of naval right. recruitment. Yeah. So Indiana Jones did the same thing yeah. for archaeology. And, and, and I can understand it. I mean, you're, you're not going to do a, a, a major motion picture with sequels and prequels about a policeman in a privy. <laughs> you're going to do something different. That one you might be able to, yeah. to make work. Yeah. But you mentioned finding the privy with the, the policeman material in 1980. Yes. But you started here in 1990. So what, what did you do... All right, you graduated college. You're you're going down the path of archaeology. What, how do you get from there to the museum center? Um, I actually started out after a uh, graduate undergrad. I went to what is now Ohio History Connection. It was the Ohio Historical Society at that time, and I got hired as a survey archaeologist. I mean, back in the day, you could get any job you wanted. It's not. It, I, mean, I think I applied for four jobs, and I got all four of them. Jeez, brag. This job market? Come on. No, you couldn't do that today. But I got like all four of my head to decide what do I want to do. I think one of them was with the Ohio Department of Transportation. I thought, no, that doesn't sound cool. And then so I, the Ohio Historical Society, that sounds cool. So we, I walked around for six months doing survey work outside recording archaeological sites. And they were paying me. I thought, this is cool. And then I got a, a phone call from someone I knew that um, Miami Purchase Association, which is now Cincinnati Preservation Association. They had a regional office for the Ohio Historic Preservation Office. They did both history architecture and they did archaeology. And they had an archaeologist, but they were looking for somebody to do survey work with it. And uh, this way, I could be back in Cincinnati. My other job was in Columbus, which I I didn't like being there. So I, I got to be here in Cincinnati, and I had that job for nine years uh, and did some that's where I did that privy work was yeah. with, when I worked for Miami Purchase Association. So, yeah. And then in um, 1989, I had a conversation with Wes Cowan, who was the curator of, at the time, the curator of anthropology at Cincinnati Museum of Natural History. And he said that they were applying for a grant to bring some stuff down from the art museum. Was I interested in sort of a collection management job? And uh, let me just say, it paid a lot less, but... I was bored out of my mind doing contract archaeology and some other stuff, which is what I've been doing in between, because I like to talk, as you know. Yeah. I had no one to talk to. The phone would ring, and I would run across the room and knock stuff over to answer the phone. <laughs> and I thought, I can go to a museum. I said, I'm a nerd. There are all these other nerds are here. I don't care what I'm making at the moment. This is what I want to do. So I took that job in 1990, and uh, this is my 34th year. I'm still here. That's incredible. It's very interesting to be able to talk to people who have been here for so long and have seen the different changes and iterations of the museum. And you mentioned you mentioned the, the phone book cover and that you more or less recreated the photo with everyone who was here in 1990 when it opened at Union Terminal. Uh, and you recreated this 2019, 2018? It was right before the pandemic. It yeah. may have been, yeah, I think it was the end of, 2019. We actually did it inside the rotunda, and there may have been 10 or 12 of us. I haven't seen the photo in a bit, but I mean, that's to be expected after, you know, at that point, how many? That was uh, 29 years. Yeah. You're not going to have a lot of employees still there. But it speaks to the power and the draw of of museums. Yeah. And as you've mentioned, it's 
it's very unique. It, it really is a calling for a lot of people. Uh, and in this building and this museum in particular, it's got so many components, so many aspects of it, so that everyone kind of finds their niche and hangs out for a while, for yeah. for a few decades. Yeah. People ask me, why don't you retire? And my first thought, it just goes, well, I could, but I love my job. I love the place I work at. You know, and people look at you like you're nuts when you say something like that, because a lot of them have these jobs where they can't wait to go home. They, you know, they can't wait for the weekend because they don't want to go back on Monday. They don't like their jobs. I love my job. You and, know, it's who I am. And people, people might think you've been here for over 30 years that you're just in an air conditioned office, just hanging out. But I've seen you chest deep in a pit, covered in dirt, dripping sweat in in July. Outside, yeah. you, you're not just taking a back seat. You're you're in it. You're in the thick of it still. Yeah, that was, and, and I miss that. We haven't done the field school in a while. We did it for twelve straight years out at the Han site, um, in um, Anderson Township, right next to Newtown there. And I I miss that. Again, like I said, I I consider myself to be a dirt archaeologist. I like to get my hands dirty. I mean, that's the fun part of it. So, you, like like you said, you're getting stuff directly out of the ground. You know, it's not a book. You can misinterpret it, but that's up to you. You can screw that up, but it's sitting there right in front of you for you to do something with it. And it doesn't get much cooler than that. And that's every day when you're out there, you're finding all this cool stuff. Uh, And you're dealing with uh, students and so forth, and they're like in awe of like, well, I didn't know it was like this. I said, yeah, it is. Now, that was one month out of the year. And we always said, you know, we worked with Ted, one of our adjuncts, I said, Whenever these students can out dig us, we're gonna quit, and that that never happened. But it was it felt like it was getting close, you know. Where, you know, I'll, I'm 69 and a half, so um, I don't get up and down out of an excavation unit like I used to. But I can still I can still dig with them. Uh, but that was a point of contention. We, we would say, you know, if we if one of us can't do this, we're gonna stop. So was there ever a point? Where you're, where you're thinking, I can't wait to outgrow this. I can't wait till I don't have to be the one digging anymore. Or were you just thriving in the field? Were you looking forward to being there and getting dirty? Oh no, I, I wanted to get dirty. I wanted to. In fact, my job when I was there was actually as a supervisor and taking the notes and taking the photographs, which seriously got in the way of what I really wanted to do, which was to get into some of these units. You know, I so I was stuck doing things, but I, you know, occasionally I would get in and work. Uh, but I, I wanted to be doing the actual work. Uh, and the look at the, you know, the looks on these, these people, I'll call them kids compared to me, they are, uh, that looks on their faces when they're finding this stuff is just amazing, you know. And we, we have had kids out yes, before. Yes. We, we did this as part of our summer camps for late elementary or early middle school Yeah, students. we did uh, STEM, STEM girl stuff and some other students. In fact, our Andy Roth, one of our, uh, Crew chiefs out there, she ran the STEM girls and did a, a fabulous job. Uh, I know nothing about children in education. It's not never been my thing. She was a, um, a school teacher in Hamilton County, and she was fabulous at what she did. So we learned a lot from that. Uh, and one of the things we did when, we, when we, we had been digging for years and realized that 90% of our interns, we'd get three or four or five interns every summer, were women. Really, and here we got our crew chiefs are all 
are all men. Two of them, you know, are, uh, you know, in their 60s and balding. And, and then we have all these, you know, 20, 22-year-old women students. And we thought, we need a woman crew chief. We need them to say, look, they need to feel like they can do this, you know, that they can be the boss and do this. So that's when I got Andy as, as a crew chief uh, to run some of this stuff. I've been out to the Han site before. Mitch has been out there. He shot a lot of video out there, which is amazing. It's very cool. And as someone who, you know, works in communications, works in PR, to me, that visual is awesome. I'm like, perfect. Like, just someone give me a camera that I can put Bob, who is covered in dirt head to toe in front of, because this looks cool. This captures it. And it is very impressive to see just the the precision of it all, but the really loose nature from a, a personality perspective. I mean, everything, the processes are tight, the the uh, the documentation, everything is really tight and really rigid, but just the, the camaraderie was, was always really impressive to yeah. watch. And no one ever wanted to give me a shovel, which I think was the right move. Yeah. But you get a lot of envy if you're just watching. Yeah, there's sort of a dichotomy between dirt mud in the soil and then doing science that's really predictable and precise they just don't seem to go together which is what kind of makes it exciting paleontology is the same way glenn would tell you this too that they don't seem to go together but they do you know you're covered in mud and all this but i gotta get a precise read on this i gotta take all these notes you know right uh you know so there is this sort of dichotomy uh between science and a complete mess around you yes you mentioned it being able to to hold it in your hands. You're holding something right. that's not been touched in centuries, that someone hasn't touched or held or maybe never intended to for hundreds of years in a lot of instances, right? Yeah. What yeah. is it, what is that like? It's, it's what, amazing. What? I remember once, uh, about halfway through it, we had uh, this student, she uh, she was screening and she found a complete uh, flint arrow tip. And she'd come over and show it to me, but she was all excited. And I said, yeah, I said, that is cool. I said, but it's like the fifth hundred, five hundred one that we found. She goes, get out. And I said, no, it's true. Just they're crushing just dreams. Like, no, they're just, there's so many of them. Uh, it is cool, but there's so many of them that you get jaded after a while when you when you do that. Are, are you ever in awe of yourself sometimes to think that you have a role, you have a position in which you cannot be faced by finding a full flint arrowhead that's hundreds of years old? If I saw that, I would tell people that every chance I get. For yeah. for five years straight, after I found it, I would just tell people that all the time. You, they're just commonplace. Well, I mean... They're like when acorns. You, when you do it, yeah, when you do it all the time, there's still, you still get a little thing in the back of your mind. You just don't do the jumping up and down part that you may have done the first time. And I, I always just tell this story. I In one of the posts that I do, I found in my entire life as an archaeologist, I have found one fluted point which is, you know, 11, 12, 13,000 years old. It's what, the oldest stuff. What does that mean? What's a fluted, fluted point is like a lance, lanceolate-looking point. It's fatter in the middle, and they have a flute channel on each side on the bottom that comes off the, off the base of it, and that's okay. where it's hafted. And I was by myself up in Warren County at this site this one day, and I had actually parked the car. It wasn't very from the car, far from the car, and I looked down, and poking out of the soil was the base of one of those points. I could see what it was. Now, the question was, how much was left in the ground behind? It could have been just that piece, or it could have been more. And I remember at the time, I sat back in the car, and I lit up a cigarette. I smoked cigarettes at the time. 
Uh, I sat there and smoked that whole cigarette, just contemplating how much of this is going to be there. <laughs> and uh, I pulled it out. It was like 95% there. There's one little ear broken off on the end. And to me, that was exciting. I've never found another one. The guy I was working with came the next day, and he was mad. Like, he had never found one. Uh, so that was a cool thing to do, to find that. That's old. There's not many of them. In our collections, you know, you've seen how many points I post on. I, we probably have 120 of those points out of 100,000. What age range are we talking about? How, how old would those be? So it, they're 11, 12,000 years. Let's just go wow. old, something like that. Old. It's old. <laughs> I asked you this once, and I was so fascinated by the response. I asked you if you considered yourself more a historian or a scientist, because I always thought archaeology was history. But you had a very interesting response that just blew me away. Do you so, remember what it was? <laughs> you, you don't? You don't have one teed up? You, you, so, it, interesting. You I'm would, thinking about it right now. So You told me you considered yourself more of a scientist. And you know what's funny? I'm you, sitting here right now thinking that I may consider myself more of an historian. So maybe, it, it depends. Maybe I led you with the question Yeah, I mean, then, we, but... Um, there are two different things... We do use a lot of science in um, archaeology, which is why we're not considered like part of, uh, in some ways, the history staff, more of the science staff. But we deal with, it's essentially history, or we used to say prehistory, but now we say pre-contact. You have to learn how to interpret and deal with historical data, not just the archaeology stuff. So you have to do both. And I think maybe the reason I was hesitating is because I'm so used to doing the science and employing the science that sometimes I forget how cool the history part actually is. So I don't know if I got out of that uh, question without sounding too ridiculous, but... I, I guess it, you know, maybe you're, you're thinking, maybe this is an analogy that works, and if not, then we'll have Mitch cut it. But, you know, you think of, um, of architects and, and, and things like that. You wouldn't ask an architect if they're a mathematician, but they use math right. every day and what they do. But you ask them what they do, and they say, oh, I'm, a, I'm an architect. And so to you, is the science just so ingrained? It's just another tool in your toolbox that you're, that you're using in pursuit of the history? Yeah, it's exactly it. It's, it's like a, the science is a tool that you're using. Um, but archaeology, because it's anthropology, is about people. It's always people-centered. And science, in most cases, isn't always people-centered. It's more data. So if you want to think about the people, I can use the science, but what is it telling me about these people that I'm digging this stuff up from? So to me, that's maybe more historical. When you're talking about digging this stuff up, how do you even know where to look? So you found a, a fluted point sticking out of the ground. My guess is that's not always how it goes. So how do you even know where to go? Or do you just look at a field and you say, I wonder what's in there, and you just start digging? Well, in this case, we weren't digging. We were surface collecting. Surface collecting sites are, are different. So these are plowed fields, which you're either trying to find sites or you know one's already there. In this case, we knew the site was already there. We were collecting it after it had plowed and rained and weathered a little bit, uh, and that gives us data. And we can also map where these pieces are, so you can give sort of spatial analysis when you do that. When we do excavations, it's different. You, and now, back in the day when I started, you had no clues as to what was there. Uh, you could put cores in the ground or something, but now we have all these tools like remote sensing. And to me, remote sensing is the number one thing that has changed archaeology since I started. 
because now you have an idea where things are. So at the Han site, for instance, where we did our field school, we employed magnetometry, um, which is a device that can tell where there are magnetic signatures in the ground. So some things leave these magnetic signatures. So if, the, if, if something is burned, that will increase the magnetism of something. So they have these tools that can detect these minor differences in magnetism, you know, carrying them above the ground. Uh, and so we also used uh, some ground-penetrating radar and some other uh, conductivity sort of meters. Uh, we used also uh, magnetic susceptibility, which looks at the ability of soil to take on magnetism. So that can show you where things are. So you can use that. You have these maps. You say, oh, well, I'm going to dig here because this is here. We call it ground truthing. So the people who do the geoprospection, they just call them anomalies, which I always find cute. They right. don't want to say this is a feature, this is a pit. It's an anomaly. I said, okay, I'm going to go dig your pit because I can see it here. Yeah. So we ground truth it to see it's there. And in most cases, it's there. It's very rare that you don't see what's there. Uh, they don't tell you everything. They don't tell you how deep it is. They just tell you that something's there that is a magnetic anomaly, and it's probably prehistoric or pre-contact. And you're going to dig until you find it. We dig and we, so, so we can use that to decide where to dig, where we might find houses, where's an empty area where there might be a plaza, that sort of thing. For some people, that uh, introduction of technology or the shifting technology, can they have resistance to that. Did you have any kind of resistance to using magnetometry and, and, and radar and things like that, or are you like, Finally, this makes it so much easier. <laughs> the latter. It, it's like when you're, yeah. you know, as a kid, your your dad asks you to do something, and so you're, all right, you're just slogging away, and he's like, "Why didn't you, why didn't you use this tool? That was going to make it so much easier." And like, right. where was that? You could have used the stud finder, yeah. Cody, when you instead of, you know, hammering on the wall, you could have just used that. That's the same thing. Where a stud finder is a remote, it's remote sensing. This is essentially what it is. You know, it's looking for a magnetic signature. You're so much better at analogies than me. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, no, when that stuff came out, it's like, oh, my God, yes. We don't have to do all that other stuff that we were doing or, or digging blindly. And when you hit something, then you had to figure out a way of telling somebody, well, I kind of knew this was here all the while. This was my plan when you really didn't. Yeah. You know, now it's like you know where the stuff is. You, you, can't, you can't do that anymore. And, and you learn how to read and interpret that uh, remote sensing data. Now there are people who do nothing but remote sensing. They are experts at it. They can interpret it. And plus, we can know exactly where we are today. We have, you know, these GNSS uh, satellites. And um, so you, you have base stations. It'll tell you within a centimeter or two where you are. We never had that in the past. We wanted to know that. We had to measure something, put a stake in the ground, run a tape, you know, a tape from here to there. Now it's, it's really easy. Now these kids have it so easy. But they do. That's what I tell them. You know, you mentioned the... the Archaeology collections, hundreds of thousands of objects, would you say? How many? More. I w Millions? I uh, more. Okay. Uh, we don't know exactly how many we have because none of us would probably live long enough to count them all. But we have a lot of bulk stuff where we have a lot of, lots of pieces of small stuff. So how do we count all that stuff? We don't know. I think sometimes we'll say three million objects in... Uh, and that, that's a guess. So just to put it in line, I have cataloged 945,000 objects from Han alone. Wow. And I have, I'm still four years behind. And that's just one site out of dozens. But you don't just manage archaeology collections. You manage 
ethnographic collections as well. Yes. So what kind of materials are are in those? Well, the ethnographic stuff is, is kind of like archaeological materials, but it's more modern and it's not dug out of the ground. It's purchased, collected, acquired uh, from various areas around the world. And most of our collection, as most ethnographic collections are, museums of our size are from uh, donors who traveled around the world. And they brought stuff back, and then they would leave it to us in their will. Uh, So there's a lot of cool stuff. We use ethnology stuff more to tell stories. There are terrific stories in our ethnographic collections. Because typically there there is more provenance to that, or there, there's a little more Sometimes backstory, or at least you know the donor, and so you can right. dig more into that person and yeah. kind of... Depends on what information they left us. But some of them, we have entire collections from people, and they have tons of information on the stuff that they collected. Uh, including they give us uh, scrapbooks of photos. And, like, we have one woman who uh, traveled around the Southwest in uh, 1910, 1920, 1930, 1940, and she became friends with a lot of tribal people out there. And She collected Southwest jewelry and ceramics and basketry, had all these relationships with people, and we have all her notes, all her photographs, and her objects. And that's the best part of it is you can put all that stuff together. You can't do that. Archaeology doesn't. We don't. We have no one to talk to. Right. There are no living people that we can talk to who actually touched this material or left it in the ground. We can talk to their lineal descendants, but we can't talk to them. So the ethnographic stuff is kind of cool. And uh, there's a lot of great collections. The Fleshman Collection is one. That was on display in Treasures of Travel. I remember all your exhibits, Bob. Yeah, you got you know name. Whatever. Treasures yeah. of Travel. Yes. Well, it is your job, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah, I, I have a very bad, bad memory. <laughs> so, so yeah. So the Fleshman stuff. I mean, uh, they traveled around the world, 1931, 1932, in a, a personal yacht that they had constructed. It was it was the most expensive yacht uh, commissioned in the U.S. I believe in 1928. Wow. Um, and they traveled around the world and they collected. Right away, I don't even have to go any further. That's a fabulous story right there. That's incredible. And we have all the stuff. They they brought it back. It was in their house in Indian Hill. And then at one point, they gave it to us. We have their journals. We have their photographs. We have movies. We have all this stuff. And, I mean, that's fabulous. I mean, there are a dozen stories we can do in that. And not just the Fleshmans, but others as they're traveling, they're buying, trading, being gifted items from different cultures around the world that tell us something. So those come back to us and they, they come into the collections and they do tell part of that culture's story, um, albeit kind of through the lens of, of these individuals who are traveling and who are kind of collecting them. Right. But the Fleischmans also rescued three castaways, right? Yes. Is that three? Yes, it is, three. What's that story? Uh, this was the Cocos Islands, which is... Uh, um, very tiny little islands. So they came out of the Panama Canal, and it's the very first islands in the Pacific. You can look up on a map. It's not that far. And they wanted, they had been there before, the Fleshmans, and there was no birds on it. So they had brought birds to release. You know, let's bring some invasive species sure. and we'll bring them onto the island. Works. So they pigeons and some other stuff that they brought there. And when they got there, they saw that people had been living there uh, and it looks like there were, had been a shipwreck. There were parts of a broken up ship, and then they, there was like two areas where they had built makeshift shelters out of parts of the boat and other stuff, but there was no people there. 
So they stayed there overnight hoping they'd come back. So the next day they got back onto the Camargo, which is the name of their vessel. The Camargo, that's it. Yeah, and they traveled around the other side of the island, and they had a small cannon on the Camargo, and they fired it. And um, they saw people on the shore. So they didn't have the ability with the Camargo to go in there. So they called, as you do when you're the Fleshmans, they called the U.S. Navy at Panama Canal. And the Navy sent out a cruiser, which was only one foot longer than the Camargo. No kidding. To show you how big the wow. Camargo was. And they came in with boats, and they rescued these three. And they were, uh, you know, nearly naked. Uh, of course, the first thing they all wanted was a cigarette. I can understand that, having being an ex-smoker. Julius asked them if they could go on to the Camargo first, and they made them sandwiches and tea. You know, and there's there's a, a great photograph of them wrapped in blankets sitting on the deck of the Camargo. And they went back, and it made it in, in a newsreel, and it probably would have played at some point in the newsreel, maybe in the newsreel theater here. Right. Because it was be... 31, 32. It may have played in that newsreel theater because I've seen the newsreel itself. You know, you know the, the Fleshmans from Cincinnati rescue these three castaways on the Cocos Islands, and here they are. You know the music that goes with them. It's all yeah. upbeat and, you nailed and, it. and vibrant. And uh, and it is great. it's great to see it. It's one of the things that I think we wanted to use it in the exhibit, but it turned out it wasn't wasn't going to work the way we wanted it to work, or we couldn't get permission. I can't remember. But it's it great great resources, and they all took photographs. All these people took photographs. And, that, and that's when everybody had their own camera. You know, uh, they had Browning cameras. They had all this sort of stuff. They took moving cameras, and they had a National Geographic photographer, a famous guy with him called Amos Berg. He was also famous for being a river runner. He canoed every major river in the U.S., all the fast, rapid waters. And while he was doing it, he started taking photographs. He became a photographer, and he worked for National Geographic. And Julius Fleshman got to keep the negatives, which doesn't really happen today when you deal with a photographer who shoots film. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and so we have all those. I was going to say, do we have the, oh, the yeah. negatives? Yes, and the prints. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. So you've been here for over 30 years, so clearly you enjoy what you do. But if you had to change roles with someone for a day, and this is a question I ask everyone, who would you change roles with? Oh, that's an easy um, easy answer, and the, the, the person will probably be surprised at it, but I would be the photo curator. Really? So, Arabeth, if you're listening, I want your job for a day. Arabeth Velasco, Bob I, is coming for you. Yeah, I love photographs. It's one of my things. I can look at photographs all day. And if I did, had another career, I would probably be a photographer or somebody or a photo curator, somebody who dealt with photographs. I probably wouldn't get anything done because I'd spend all day looking at the same photograph under the microscope. But I, I find historic photographs to be fascinating. Do you do photography yourself? Uh, I've, um, you know, I've as part of being an archaeologist, I've always had to do photography. I've been doing, you know, we, we, I do my own stuff. As you see, I shoot the, the the photos of the objects I do in my posts. Bob's a great Instagram follow for anyone interested. Yeah. Which you also, do you still, you also took a lot of photos of your pugs. Sometimes. Yeah. Tell me about your pugs. So I ask everyone who they would trade roles with, but my question just for you is I want to know about your pugs. I have two pugs. Have you always been a, a pug lover? Uh, no, I never had dogs until I married my wife. I should get this right. 11 years ago. We can edit it if it's Yeah, 11 wrong. years ago. And she had a pug whose name was Wally, but he was not purebred. 
he was he had a long uh, snout. I was going to say, are any pugs pure? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So the 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 two that we have today are uh, from a breeder in Tennessee. They're not cheap dogs. Let me just say, but they're sweethearts. Uh, they never get nasty, really. You really have to experience them. Now, I never had a dog until. 11 years ago. Really? These... That's the first dogs I ever had. We, never, we weren't allowed to have pets when I was a child. Really? Oh, yeah. We weren't, you know, they were just too much trouble, so we couldn't have them. And so I'm new to dogs. I like these pugs. They can be trouble, but they're just adorable. Do you feel like you've been missing out? That you yeah, spend... I think so. I, I mean, I always had cats. I like cats, but uh, dogs are much different, as you know. You, you have dogs. I, I have three dogs. Yeah. But your dogs are big. They are, and they're, they're pains in the but they're, um, they, yeah. Dogs are, are their own special thing. Yeah. For everyone. Yeah, and these guys are these are they're loyal and they're companions. Now, I will tell you that I am not alpha. My wife is. Oh, that's me. Yeah, I I'm not alpha either. Yeah, so I don't, they, I'm not even beta. They, yeah. I I can stay in the kitchen all day and they won't come in. My wife walks into the kitchen. There they are. You but, know. See, my dogs follow me around. They're like, hey, tall one, get the treats. Yeah. And like it's not time. Yeah. And my wife's always like, "Oh, the time change threw them off. They're still struggling." And I was like, "It's two months later. Yeah. <laughs> you can't tell me how smart these dogs are." And she's right? like, "They're smart. They know they're yeah. pulling oh, yeah. one over on you. They're smart. They are. They get treats for all sorts of things and house, and they play that game." Yeah. I sometimes I feel bad, and then I realize they're they're treated better than I am. Oh yeah. They they don't help me out with anything. That's for sure. No. But, so I like dogs. Um, yeah. Oh, you were asking me before about what what else would I want to be. Now, when I was a child, what I really wanted to be was a Major League Baseball player. Yeah? What position? Uh, something probably in the outfield where I wouldn't have to interact with the ball very much. <laughs> Why did you want to be a, a baseball player? For the glory and prestige, of course. Of course. And uh, but, but that dream ended when I couldn't go beyond D-ball as a child. I was just wasn't. I mean, I was a small child. All these other kids were really big, and like you know, you weren't. I, I could see the writing was on the wall. I wasn't going to be playing baseball after this. It's there was all these sizable kids. I was four foot eleven when I started high school. Really? But I was five seven. The next year, what did you eat? What was your diet? I don't know, that... but I I will tell you this: I learned one of the lessons I learned in life was um, watching out what you said. When I was four foot eleven, I was a little bit of a smart ass, <laughs> and these bigger kids would just say, "Oh, that's cute," and they would sort of pat you and walk away. When the next year, when I was five seven, it no longer worked. It was my first lesson in life. Be careful what you say. Think about what you're going to say. And I've always remembered that. Uh, it was forced upon me by getting bigger. This feels very targeted to, towards me because I'm a smart <laughs> so I feel a little, um, I feel like I learned something. To, to well, say. if you're not a bit, to yeah. go, Not to yeah. go to the Geyer Center because I'm going to get roughed up. No, but it's one of those lessons in life you learn. And that's that's what high school is all about. You know, you don't learn those things in grade school. Not much. You might get bullied. But, you know, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, Roger Bacon. Okay, yeah. yeah. Which is co-ed today. And it was a different thing back then. The You know, the we had Franciscan priests, and there was discipline. You didn't get away with things at all. 
that was a big difference from grade school to there. Grade school was a little bit laissez-faire, you know, as long as you didn't burn something down. Yeah. But once I went to high school, there was discipline, and um, and that sort of teaches you some stuff, I think. Did you have a favorite player growing up? I Baseball? assume you grew up. Yeah, I assume you grew up a, a Reds fan, being a, a Cincinnati kid. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a favorite player when you were a kid? Yeah, I think when Pete Rose came in, he was my favorite player, and I think. But you would find a lot of people say that uh, because he was just nuts. He ran out, you know, a walk. He'd run the first base. He did all this sort of stuff. He was just like from another planet. And he was from the west side of town. He was a Cincinnati kid, and all this. And um, and I don't know if I've ever told you a story, but he picked me up thumbing once. Did he? I was thumbing from the west side of town to UC. We only had one car, and we had three of us in college, and so I would thumb to UC. And he pulled me over, and he was driving a cherry red uh, Porsche, like 911, one of the—I can't remember what it was. And he picked you he up? He picked me up. And I thought, I recognize him, of course, and I thought, I'm going to pretend like I don't know who he is, but that didn't last very long. I, I think I got a block before I said something. But he you know, he just said a few words, and that was it. He just picked me up, and he dropped me off uh, on the other side of, of 75. So That's that incredible. was my brush to fame with the guy I wanted to be. And I thought, well, he didn't impress me that much, but I wanted that car. <laughs> the car is what I wanted. And you're like, you know what, baseball, nope. My path to this vehicle yeah, is archaeology. Yeah, that's right. That's what I thought. Someday I will get that car. So, Oh, that's not yours in the lot right now? Shh. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, Bob, thanks for joining us. This was a, a ton of fun. You know what? I say this a lot, and I'm genuine every time I say it, but truly you are one of my favorite people in the museum. You and I have known each other for 10-plus years now in, in different capacities, um, and I, I've just always enjoyed every time I, I get to talk with you. So thanks for joining us. Uh, And thank you all for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe. But more importantly, come see for yourself. Visit cincymuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 